I'm speaking with one of the busiest men in the British film industry, producer Jonathan Sothcott. I first got to know Jonathan over 20 years ago when we bonded over our mutual love of Transformers and Steven Seagal movies. Back then, Jonathan was into film journalism and he worked extensively on a number of DVD releases interviewing iconic actors and recording audio commentaries. Over the years, Jonathan has produced a huge catalogue of movies of his own, including Vendetta, Nemesis, Age of Kill, The Fall of the Essex Boys, and the hugely popular We Still Steal the Old Way and We Still Kill the Old Way. Jonathan has worked with a wealth of British acting talent, such as Danny Dyer, Craig Fairbrass, Martin Kemp, Billy Murray, Julian Glover, Nick Moran, Ian Ogilvie and Patsy Kensit. Jonathan's latest movie, Renegades, stars film legends Lee Majors and Danny Trejo. In this interview, Jonathan talks openly about his own film catalogue, his influences, what it was like working through lockdown with Steven Seagal, and about his good friend Christopher Ellison, who it was recently announced has been diagnosed with aphasia. For anyone wanting to get into the film industry, whether as a writer, director, musician or a producer, you're going to want to hear what Jonathan has to say. Um, can you tell me what it, what it was like for you when you were growing up in sort of burgeoning your, your film interests? What sort of influences did you have that got you to do what you, you wanted to do today? Funnily enough, I can actually genuinely trace it back to one moment, which sounds like a real cliche, um, but I guess I would have been about four or five and on TV, there was uh, one of those specials about the making of Return of the Jedi. Um, and I'd just seen Return of the Jedi and, and probably the other Star Wars films by then. They had all the toys and all that kind of stuff. And it made me understand at a really young age that a film gets made. And it was this amazing show because it showed you the puppeteers getting inside Jabba the Hutt and the band and all that and all pulling the strings. And I thought, wow. And, it, you know, you saw all these actors. You know, when you're that young, you don't really understand that the characters aren't are actors. Um, but I saw all of these, these you know, um, Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill all interacting and having a laugh and drinking coffee and smoking and all those things. And I thought, wow. And, and that definitely sparked my interest in how films are made, which is, I guess is the, um, the logical kind of progression to this. And I was always interested in that. Always, um, you know, there were sort of, not, not in the detail there are now, but there will be books about behind the scenes and there will be, um, you know, paperback novelizations. And I was always sucked into this whole world. I mean, you know, I was obsessed with movies. Um, when I was that age, my parents had a Betamax recorder and we had we had Jaws. We had, I think it was The Empire Strikes Back. Um, you know, so rubbish as well. But I would watch them relentlessly. And Jaws is still my favorite movie, without a doubt. Um, and, and as I sort of grew up, I just really went down that path and would buy film magazines um, you know, and, and in the in the 90s, which I suppose, you know, was when my teens kicked in, Empire magazine suddenly came out, which gave this real kind of unfiltered access. You know, film magazines were very glossy before that. Um, certainly the ones that I saw, and, you know, the sort of photo play and films and filming and stuff like that were really kind of things that PRs would send out and they'd get printed. Um, and, I, and I really suppose I, I got sort of interested from there. Um, and, and rather foolishly, some would say, decided to try and make it a career. <laughs> And was it always producing that you wanted to do, or did you want to ever be sort of acting, directing? No, um, no, 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 none of those things at all. Um, I, I thought I was going to be a film journalist. That's To be honest with you, that's what I really thought I was going to be. And when I was sort of 16 or 17, I was selling articles on spec to film magazines, um, and I got really, really lucky. Met this chap in America, he's an American now called David Gregory, um, who owns a, a video label there called Severin Films, and they do all these high-end restorations of cult movies. And when I met him, he had just got a gig working for a company that was going to figure in my life again later on called Anchor Bay Entertainment. Mm. Um, and they'd acquired uh, the Canal Plus, Studio Canal um, library of titles to release on DVD in America when DVD was a new thing. So this is uh, late 90s. And he'd been tasked with making all the extras, the DVD commentaries, the documentaries, all that kind of stuff. And, and I became one of his guys. Um, so... I got to interview everyone you can imagine, from Ken Russell to Christopher Lee to Michael Winner to Brian Forbes. Um, the, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I, I did DVD commentaries as a fucking teenager, frankly, which is outrageous, on everything from Summer Holiday to Doctor Who and the Daleks to Women in Love to Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. I mean, it really was this, you know, awakening. But I, I absorbed everything from these filmmakers of, Osmotically, You know, I was like a sponge trying to suck up as much practical advice as I could. And, and if 
I'm pretty sure everyone I just mentioned is no longer with us. And I was so lucky at that age to meet these, you know, proper legends of British film. Um, and they were all so kind because, you know, the film industry in this country kind of collapsed in the 80s. And, and I guess they, a lot of them hadn't received the kind of tributes they would have done now had they been alive in the age of the internet. You know, the internet is great for all these retrospectives and cult followings and people find out all this stuff. But back then we were still fairly analogue um, and, it, and it wasn't really happening. And I think that that was a real great platform for me. And, and through that, I met um, a, a wonderful man called David Wicks, who was a, a film and TV director a lot of um, the, the Sweeney and the professionals, and he made this wonderful miniseries of Jack the Ripper with Michael Caine. And um, he, he was a real kind of guru to me and really encouraged me. And he said, look, you, you don't want to be writing about other people's films. You want to make your own. Um, and, I, and I worked for David as, as, as an assistant for, for some years and learned so much. And to be honest with you, at the time, I would look at him sometimes and think, wow, you're really harsh or wow, you know, you're, you're really you're cynical. And as I get older, I find myself agreeing with everything he said, and he was always right. Um, and, uh, I, you know, the naivety of youth sometimes blinds you to that. But he was a real amazing person. Um, and then I met another um, much older than David producer called Ewan Lloyd, who produced The Wild Geese and Who Dares Wins and The Sea Wolves and all these movies. Um, and I made a documentary about Ewan called The Last of the Gentleman Producers. And he was another real kind of mentor to me. Um, and really encouraged me, and um, I stayed in touch with Ewan until he died, which was a few good few years ago now, um, and actually gave the eulogy at his memorial service. But he was a real pioneer in the 70s. You know, he was making these really commercial action movies with great casts in the UK while everyone else was kind of fucking about not doing anything. So, um, you know, th those two guys I have to really credit with sort of pushing me towards being a film producer because it's not you. You can't walk into the careers office at school and say, I want to be a film producer because they'll just laugh at you even now. Um, or they'll send you on that mad Kafkaesque group working with the BBC or Netflix or whatever, which is nothing to do with making anything and just about working for a corporation. So, um, you know, I was really lucky, but I think the way it happened for me probably couldn't happen for someone now, which is sad. Yeah, because I, I went to, to film school myself, as you know, because I, I wanted to be a director at the time. Yeah. And there aren't many people who are on my film course who actually ended up working in the film industry. I, I probably think there was maybe three or four out of about 20 that seem to be working in the film industry now. So it is quite depressing in that respect. It is. It's, it's really tough and it's, it's an unforgiving business. And, you know, when you uh, sort of start to have a family and think about growing up and those kind of things, it, it really is, you know, a tough, a tough gig. I, I think the problem for me has always been in this country, it's not a film business. It's a, it's a group of people that make films and that's great. In America, it's, it's a business, you know, you go to Los Angeles, it's a mining town where they mine film and they take it all very seriously. And, you know, years and years and years ago, Martin Kemp said to me, um, if you meet the difference between the UK and the US is if you meet someone in London and they say, oh, I'm making a film, it means they've, you know, had a drink down Groucho and talked a lot of bollocks and got an idea. Whereas if you meet someone in America and they say, or in LA and they say, I'm making a film, it means they've got a finance plan and a budget and a distributor and some cast and they're probably actually going to make a film. Um, and that that's really resonated with me over the last decade or so because it's true, you know, that the industry in this country is kind of a joke. Is, is, is there anything that you think could actually change that in this industry? In this, in this yeah, country. I, I think we should encourage people to make commercial movies that people actually want to see rather than all this navel-gazing woke nonsense that they make to glorify their own egos. Do you know, that, that again fits in with what my experience is at film school because I was trying to go down the commercial route. I was trying to get... I mean, I was making an action movie in film school. Cop on the edge. That's the was one. On that's the one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But we won't talk too much about that. I was trying <laughs> to make an action movie when everybody else in film school was going down the uh, the Jean Luc Godard and all the other the sort of crap. And I was being told by my film lecturer, "Orc, the spoofs have got to stop." He said to me, "The spoofs have got to stop." Where had I known at the time, a guy I'd met years earlier on on Beadle's Hot Shots, you know, the Jeremy Beadle show where people would send in spoofs. This guy who yeah. offered me advice and wanted to work with me turned out to be bloody Edgar Wright. <laughs> and I walked away from him, and I, I walked away from him before film school, then went to film school, wasted my time at film school, then ended up as a bloody web designer all the time I had Edgar Wright in front of me wanting to, wanting to work with me. So that was a disaster, but thank you, film school, for that one. So your, your first break, how did you get your, your first break actually producing a film going from the... The, the DVD documentaries or, or DVD yeah. um, commentaries you were doing? That is, that is all down to the aforementioned Mr. Kemp. Um, I met Martin. I, I got a script together. I wanted to make this movie, um, and I sent it to him through his agent. 
I went and met him and his agent at um, his agent's office, and Martin and I just clicked. We just became instant friends, which is one of those lovely serendipitous um, things that happens from time to time. And uh, the film didn't come together, but Martin and I became friends out of it, which was fantastic. And, um, you know, he, he uh, when it when it all sort of fell apart, that movie, I thought, shit, this is it. I'm done. At 24, I pissed off Martin Kemp. I'm never going to work again. This is going to be it. And he rang me up and he said, listen, it happens all the time. Don't worry about it. Let's have lunch and talk about what we're going to do next. So we, we did. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget that. And, um, you know, it's, it's like... Whenever a fil- films always fall apart, every it doesn't matter how successful you are, it doesn't matter if the budget is ten grand or a hundred million, they they fall apart, they get put back together again. You know, the average film takes ten years to develop. Apparently, I mean, it's um, it's a crazy wild business, but, but that gave me a lot of sort of faith in, in myself again. And we met, and he said, look, what I want to do is direct. Um, he, he wanted to direct. We said, right, let's make a short film. So I produced it. He directed it. He twisted his brother's arm to play the lead in it. Um, and we made this this sort of twenty minute short film, which is a bit of a sort of tales of the unexpected type type vibe. Um, and uh, off the back of that, I managed to raise fifty grand to make a feature film that Martin also directed it's called Stalker, which was a sort of B movie thriller. Nice cast: um, Colin Salmon, Jane March, Anna Brecken, Billy Murray. Um, we made that in two thousand nine, and um, it was a really nice film. It's a film I'm really proud of. You know, it, it didn't set the world on fire. Um, it should have done better than it did, to be honest, but that's the first lesson that horror is really bloody hard because you have to stand out from the biggest crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was sold as a horror movie for sure, even though it was more of a sort of psycho thriller. Um, and, you know, Martin has been a, a mainstay of my life for the last sort of 15 years and uh, always, always opened doors for me and, you know, allowed me at a time when I was a complete unknown to use his name to open doors that would otherwise have been closed. Um, always very grateful for that and uh off off the back of that you know i once you've made one it does get easier for sure it's getting that first one made and i'm glad i didn't waste time with years and years of shorts because i think they're mostly a waste of time um you know i mean there are people that spend their whole lives making short films and i I just always think that's because they can't make a feature Mm. um and you know over the back of that I, i then met danny dyer um and i had no idea who he was when i met him um i actually met him in a nightclub with Tama Hassan, uh, and they were making a lot of movies together. And I, I sort of went back to people the next day or two days, and so I met this chap, Danny Dye, he's a famous actor. Um, and they were saying, oh, my God, if you can get him in a movie, you know, you can you can get it away. And this was at the time, I suppose he'd, he'd done Outlaw, so it was that sort of time, 2009, eight, 2008. And, and I liked him, and we got on, and um, he, he became an asset for sure. I did a couple of movies with him. Um, and and started building this kind of rep company of British actors um, very quickly. Uh, you know, really, really, I mean, amazing actors. I, I look back, I made this terrible, terrible comedy in 2009 called Just For The Record, which was a spoof of the film industry. And and the cast is is Danny Dyer, um, Craig Fairbrass, Billy Murray, Rick Mail, Rick fucking Mail. Um, you know, all these these amazing, amazing actors um, who came and did a couple of days in it. Um, and it's because, you know, look, it was a rubbish film, but no one else was making movies. And actors like to act, and, and that's the thing. Um, and, I, you know, I made some decent films, a couple of decent films. I did a zombie action movie with Dyer um, and Fairbrass called Devil's Playground, uh, which, you know, look, Dyer, some... He, he was a victim of his own success to a degree because he enjoyed being Danny Dyer a lot um, and he parties really hard and, you know, he didn't really take his career as seriously as he could have done and he certainly had a, a you know, a weakness in saying yes to everything. Whereas Craig Fairbrass was always absolutely serious about it and took it incredibly seriously. Um, and, you know, I saw then what I think the rest of the country is seeing now. And I mean, it's really nice seeing Craig get the recognition for, for muscle and villain and particularly a violent man recently, which I thought was remarkable. You know, I've always seen that. I remember sitting in a bar with him um, in the Soho Hotel and, and seeing um, Statham walk in. And, you know, I love Jason Statham. He's fantastic. He's brilliant. He's, he's you know, the most successful British actor in Hollywood, without a doubt. But I looked at him, all five foot nine of him. I looked at Craig, all six foot three of him. I thought, one of these guys should be a movie star too. There's something like, why aren't people seeing it? Um, and, and, you know, now it's, it's happening for him, which is great. Um, and, uh, and I kind of, I suppose, really from 2009 to 2012, I kind of bumbled along 
making loads of movies. I mean, people always used to say, oh, you're the most prolific producer in Britain. Well, yeah, there's nothing to be proud of about being prolific. That just means you're maybe not as choosy as you could have been. <laughs> um, and there was the odd sort of, you know, I, I, there was a football hooligan movie called White Collar Hooligan, which was a decent movie. Um, first break for an actor called Nick Nevin, who um, I, I think is a very talented lad um, and who I've done a lot of movies with. And there was one called uh, Airborne with Mark Hamill, actually, funnily enough. And that was a real lovely moment, you know, coming from that Star Wars um, sort of trigger point to, to working with Mark. And, and we went to uh, the restaurant where Alec Guinness took him when they were doing Star Wars Wheelers, which is no longer there. And he was lovely. He was absolutely joyous. That's a real a real highlight. Um, but none of these films broke out. You know, none of, I mean, White Collar Hooligan did all right, but none of them were really successful. Yeah, it's, it's a horrible thing. When you're a filmmaker or an actor or, or any other sort of creative person in the public eye, there's always that dreadful moment when you either get in a taxi or go to a dinner party and they say, what do you do? And you say, I'm a film producer. What have you done that I've seen? Well, I did that. And, that, well, I never heard of it. Right. So, which, you know, obviously people just make you feel shit all night, which is, you know, kind of tough. Um, so uh, it took me a while to make a couple of those. I mean, you know, and I, I guess really you don't learn to make an omelette without breaking some eggs. Yeah. Um, and eventually I, you know, Dyer and I were both sort of fed up, I guess, 2012. We, we were talking a lot, having a lot of heart to hearts. And he said, I just want to do one really good film. You know, and if, if I can't do it with one good one, then, you know, I'll join EastEnders, basically. That was essentially how the conversation went. Um, and we, we made this film called Vendetta. Um, it was phenomenally successful on DVD in this country. You know, I mean, it's the number one movie on DVD that year. Um, and, and there was a time when you couldn't, move for it and I remember um, having dinner with a distributor the day it came out and um, my phone was buzzing and buzzing and buzzing it was late at night, it was like 10 o'clock and people just ring me to tell me that it was being reviewed on film 2013 which was an unusual thing for that thing and they gave it a good review as well so that was um, that was remarkable and we did a lot of you know there's a lot of kind of guerrilla marketing tactics in there you know on the uh, on the poster Empire said oh this is Ron Seal cinema like it was a bad thing I put it on the fucking poster in quotes I think that's great um, so, so we made that, and and then I had a, a nice sort of golden period um, of making um, films for Anchor Bay. Anchor Bay ended up um, distributing that movie in the UK. At the time, they were owned by Stars, and uh, I made a film for them called We Still Kill the Old Way, which was a movie about retired gangsters coming out of um, uh, out of retirement to uh, to clean up the streets, and and had a slightly genius bit of luck in casting Ian Ogilvy, and and that's finally the film that taxi drivers have all seen. So finally, I'm at the point where they, they say, I say, oh, we still, oh, yeah, that one, you're great. Well, would only have been better if Ray Winston had been in it. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ray, Ray's dad was a black cab driver, so they all love him. Yeah. Um, and, and, that was, and that was good. But, the, you know, the answer to how that all happened is simply luck and determination. There's no, you know, there's no special talent to it. It's, it's just keep, you know, if you can't get through the front door, go through the back door. That's, that's how I see it. Hmm. And I I remember having a conversation with you a few years ago because you, you, you were obviously very prolific in the horror industry and then you switched across to action. And I remember you gave me a very specific reason about why you were no longer doing horror. Can you remember what that was? No, um, but I tell a lot of lies, so it could be <laughs> anything. Really. Um, you know, I, I love horror movies. Um, I think they're great fun. And, and at one point I was actually director of programming for the Horror Channel. Um, hmm. But... It's an incredibly competitive market. It's massively oversaturated. Um, and I think ultimately you have to follow a commercial instinct rather than your own. Um, and you have to make the films that people want to see, not the films that you want to make. Um, and that's ultimately why I switched in the period I've just discussed from making horror movies to gangster movies. You know, I have no interest in British gangster movies at all. Um, you know, the, the really good ones you can count on one hand and it's, it's the longer Friday and get Carter in the business and that's kind of it. And Lockstock, there you go, four. Um, but the rest of them, you know, all this, people getting shot in Range Rovers and chavs in tracksuits fighting in car parks. I have no interest in at all. That is not me in any way, shape or form. <laughs> and that was not, an, you know, something that I like. I like action movies. That's what I love. And that's what I'm doing now. And now I've managed to blend the two. There's a massive public demand for them. And I really like them, which is awesome. Um, but no, sorry. What was the, what extravagant lie did I say about why I've given up horror? Do you know, that was pretty much exactly what you said. It was, okay, about, it was about the oversaturation of the horror industry and the fact that horror movies, sadly, don't really make the money they should uh, in the cinema or, or on, on th- or on home release action well, movies is where it's, where it's at. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I think the, the biggest problem with the horror movies as well is because horror isn't cast dependent. You, know, you don't go and see a horror movie because of who's in it. So the problem is when the genre shifts from theatrical to home end, which it has, it stands or falls on the poster. And because normally when, when one buys a DVD or flicks through the Netflix thing, you know if it's a proper film by whether it's got proper actors in it. But if it's just got one of these rendered silly fucking 3D monsters with one eye on the front, it's impossible to tell if it costs one pound or a million pounds. And, and people get fed up. So you have to stand out. And the way you stand out is to spend more money and become a bigger movie. And at the end of the day, Blumhouse have got, horror sewn up as far as I'm concerned, you know, and now they're getting into all the old classic franchises. And I think that's brilliant. It's really cool. It's not to say that I wouldn't do it again. Um, but you know, I mean, we've got a couple of action horror, um, sort of predator style, um, projects in development, but they are very much action horror. There's no, there's no more spooky ghosts jumping out of cupboards and pentacles and all that kind of stuff for me. Hmm. Okay. Um, you mentioned action. Obviously you're a huge action fan and we've, we've talked, Many years ago, we talked at great length about Steven Seagal. Yeah. Because you are a massive Seagal fan. I am a massive Seagal fan. You mentioned to me a few weeks ago that you had the pleasure of actually writing a script with him over lockdown. Yeah. What, what, yeah, was, I did. what was that like? Uh, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, Stephen is a... I, I, he's only ever been lovely to me. Um, he's a, an incredibly intelligent man. Um, you know, he... he it's amazing. What 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 more fun could I have had over lockdown than sitting on Zoom with him for hours on end talking about movies and you know all, all that kind of stuff. He's great. He's awesome. Um, you know, he knows as well that he's made a load of shit in the last ten years. He's totally upfront about that. He's very frustrated by not having had much creative control. I mean, you know, if you look at those first sort of I don't know dozen movies that he did that were all, I mean, certainly the first six were brilliant. The second six weren't bad. You know, his name was all over them because he was clearly heavily involved in them creatively. Um, and then he fell into that trap of making those endless DTV things in Eastern Europe. And, you know, there's only so much you can do. When, when the, the filmmakers don't care, what, it takes more than one person to influence it. And one of the things I found in action, and obviously there are a lot of exceptions to this, but a huge amount of people make action movies now um, as a stepping stone to something else. They want to get that feature credit. They want to get that feature credit with a budget. They want to work with a certain actor. Um, and then they want to go and make a show for Netflix or they want to make their passion for it, whatever it is. I'm not like that. You know, I, I said to Stephen, if I could make Stephen Seagal movies for the next 10 years, I'd be really happy, you know, but they'd be good ones. And we got, and we got really close. And, and, you know, for me, that door is really open and, and whatever the politics of that are, um, you know, because he is a controversial figure in the industry. Um, but it's not for me to comment on his past because I don't know about that. But, he's only ever been very kind to me and very nice to me. Um, and I, I enjoyed my time with him. Um, and it's certainly a thing that is in, uh, you know, floating around. Yeah. My, my youngest met him a couple of years ago at a, a comic con in, in London and I missed the opportunity. Unfortunately, I'm really oh, no. gutted, really gutted about that. It, it's because of the way they did the queue system. I was in with one of the doctors. I think it was, it was either Matt Smith, I think, or, or it was Peter Cabal. Oh, I, I, thought, I thought you meant you'd had a medical emergency. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I was in with one of the doctors. Um, so, yeah, I, I was really annoyed the way they did the queuing system because I missed I missed Steven Seagal, so gutted. So I'm insanely jealous of the fact that you've got so much, such Seagal FaceTime with him. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, he's, he's, he's a legend. And, and, yeah, Out for Justice is one of my absolute favourite movies. Seriously, seriously underrated uh, movie. And, and William Forsyth is very much on my radar. Um, you know, we, we all have these casting lists that, that go up and down and change around, and and, uh, and he's always on mine. Um, and I'd very much like to work with him, too. Yeah, it's got brutal action Out for Justice, isn't it? It's brutal. It really has. It really does not fuck about in that movie. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's great. I mean, I actually... Yeah, I'd probably get in trouble for saying this, but my wife and I showed it to our 10-year-old son a couple of weeks ago, and he fucking loved it, and he just runs around the house now going, anybody see Richie? Which is awesome, you know, so the next generation is inspired. Oh, well done. That's cracking work there. Um, can I ask you, what what is the process for people who are trying to get into the film industry or people who are, who are writers, directors? What is the process that you would advise people do to get a film made, to get into the right people? It's so hard and it depends on the type of movie. I mean, look, what, what everyone has now that I never had was this online crowdfunding, um, you know, and, and that does seem to be something that people can raise a lot of money on. You know, I would never do it because obviously as a professional, I think it's quite insulting to ask people to fund 
your own vanity. If you can't get it funded otherwise, fine. But for people coming in, that seems to be the way. And, and you know, to be honest with you, if you can find a little collaborative group of people, uh, you know, it's easy enough to get the equipment now. You know, everything's digital. There's no cost to making a film apart from people's time. Um, and, and that's what I think is good. And, and all I can say, um, if people are doing it at a more serious level, um, the, the lesson I've learned, but it's, I think it's going to take a while to filter through generally, is just use the best actors. Never, ever, ever use non-actors. I mean, you know, I can't tell you how disgusted I am that Gemma Collins is doing Chicago in the West End. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that just makes me want to drive down there with a big bag of shit and throw it because it's it's just disgusting. You know, how dare they do that to, to you know, I mean, theatre's even worse. It's a real actor's medium. Um, but everyone thinks, oh, I'll get some, some silly idiot off a reality show and put them in my film and that will make it all happen. No, it won't. Get good actors, give performances, tell good stories. Don't buy into all this social media bullshit because that's exactly what it is. Yeah, I, I do remember from my time in film school, whenever we had to use professional actors for a project, it, it massively elevated it than trying to have students do it themselves. It made a huge difference. Yeah, so, no, I think that's... I mean, I mean, I don't feel I'm in a position to give advice. I'm not Steven Spielberg, but I think you've just got to try and do the very best that you can. Um, and if you have a good story to tell and you can, uh, you know write it down or film it or whatever it is, it will find an audience. And, you know, there's no excuse anymore. No one's getting a theatrical release. Theatrical releases for tentpole Marvel movies. It's not for, for us and it's not for new filmmakers. You know, get it made, put it in a festival, people will see it. Speaking of actors, so you, you've mentioned some names already, some fabulous people you've worked with. What is it like working with people like Danny Dyer? What's he like on, on a daily basis on set? He's great. Dyer's great. He's a um, he's a real professional. Uh, you know, he's um, I, I mean, you know, obviously he's been doing EastEnders for the last ten years. Um, he was very unsure of himself. Um, he used to take the the critics very personally, and you know, they used to hate him. You know, let's have it right. They used to rip him to pieces for nothing. Um, he's a good actor, um, and he's a good guy. You know, he's. Um, Billy Murray called me one day, you know, another one, look, Billy's a fucking brilliant actor, you know, from the bill yeah. um, and EastEnders. And, and we, we, we were all mates and we'd all go out and Billy called me and he said, um, a friend of mine's um, asked me if, if uh, he's got, he's got a young lad that's um, very ill, very ill. Um, and he'd really like to meet Danny Dyer before, you know, it comes to an end. Can you fix it? So I called up Dyer um, and, and he said, yeah, of course. Where, where are we going? Well, I said, well, let's go down tomorrow. So we went down to um, Cafe Rouge in Loughton in Essex, and, um, and I'd been to HMB and bought a box of Dyer DVDs. And he sat there with that for an hour and talked about football and signed his things. And no one will ever know that. Mm. There was no camera. There was no none of that. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of actors wouldn't do that. But, but he was a decent person um, and and could never quite believe that it happened to him. I think he never thought he deserved the fame. And when he first got EastEnders, we went out for lunch. And, the, you know, the difference in the fame that that gives you is, is phenomenal. You know, I mean, we, we were walking down the street in London and it was like being out with the Beatles. You know, people were popping out of windows and dropping down ladders and coming out of manholes and all that. It was weird. Um, and, and one thing I've learned is that EastEnders is a blessing and a curse for actors. You know, it's the most famous you can be in this country. There is no more famous, not now maybe, but certainly 10, 15 years ago, when Martin Kemp was in it. You cannot be any more famous than being in half the country's living room every night. Um and but it's also really limiting and, and you know now Dyer's leaving he will find that you know he is he is now a soap actor which in this country is a very derisory term unfortunately in the horrible snobby bafta nonsense segment of that of that business um you know I mean look with Fairbrass he's a great actor but it's taken him he, he must have left these senders 20 years but he's plugged away and plugged away and plugged away and taken it seriously and now he's getting the critical acclaim that he deserved all that time um so it's 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 a tricky one um some of them handle it well, some of them don't. Um, you know, I, I think I gather that Dyer's doing a, a TV series for Sky next, um, which will be which will be good for him. Um, and I hope he makes the right choices. Um, and, and I think with those guys, you know, never close the door because there's always a regular, or at least until the BBC shuts down, there's always a regular job there waiting for them. <laughs> yeah. Um, one, one of the other guys you've worked with, um, who is uh, I'm a huge fan of, huge fan of, is uh, Danny Trejo. Yeah, I don't have a lot of stories about Trejo because um, I wasn't there for the shoot. It was shot in America during the pandemic, so um, the director did that and I didn't. But all I can say is he's, he's lovely in the film, in my new film, Renegades. Um, 
he's he was a joy to deal with. Um, Ian Ogilvy did his scenes with him and said he was he was great. Um, yeah, I mean he's he's awesome. Um, but but I don't have any amazing Danny Trejo anecdotes because I actually wasn't there that day. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it happens sometimes. I, I just did a the, the film I did before that. I had um, Julian Glover in um, from Star Wars, from Empire Strikes Back, and Indiana Jones and Bond, and all that. And it was our third movie together. But I'd never met him on the other two. I just hadn't been there on the days that he was in. Um, and and he did point out to me that if I get him in for more than a day in each film, then it was more likely we'd meet. So. Um, it was nice to actually to, to finally meet him. And he was fantastic. And, you know, look, when I was a kid, I loved Indiana Jones. I loved Star Wars. I loved James Bond. And he was in all of those and so much more. And one, one of the things I'm, I'm really, really lucky to do is that when I'm casting these movies, and I do it all myself. I don't believe in casting directors. I think they're a total waste of time in my type of films, um, is that I get to sort of play with all these toys, you know, literally from my childhood. There's people that I used to love watching as a film buff, I can now employ and get them to tell my stories. And it's, you know, it's such an honour. Hmm. And But one actor you you have worked a lot with and, and also was on the bill, and I know he's a good friend of yours, uh, is somebody that it was announced uh, just last week, I yeah. think it was, is, is not not well at all. Um, what, what, what experiences did you have of, of working with Chris? Oh, it's horrible. It's a horrible, horrible thing with Chris. Um, you know, it's heartbreaking, really. We, um, I've known him for years. We've done several movies together. And the hardest thing about his honest for me personally, beyond, you know, loving him to death, I mean, you know, he was one of my closest friends and, and is, but um, every week, every day almost, someone on social media says, when are you doing the third We Still Kill the Old Way film? And I could never say why. And people want to know, of course. And I'll just say we're not. So, uh, you know, now it's out. That's why we're not doing a third We Still Call the Old Way film. Um, for me, he was an integral part of it, and I would never do one without him. Um, him and Ogilvy are the two that were the, the crux of it. Um, it's really sad. He called me, um, called me, I guess, about January 2020, and he didn't sound right. And I said, what's the matter? And he said, oh, I've, I've had a stroke. And I said, oh, no, how, you know, how awful. He said, yeah, but it was only a minor stroke, and I feel fine. But he sounded different. Um, he sounded really, really different. And um, we said, we must get together, we must get together. But then obviously the pandemic hit in the beginning of 2020 um, and I was getting married in September that year. And I wanted him and his wife to come to the wedding. We had a tiny wedding in COVID. We only had six people there in the end. Um, and But I wanted them to be, you know, another two. And we went to see them in, they, they live in Brighton in, I think, June or July. Yeah, let's say it was July or August maybe that year. When the restrictions sort of lifted in the summer, we went and we had lunch with them, took the kids and all this kind of stuff. And um, and he was he was himself. He was absolutely himself. He was, you know, we, we drunk 10 bottles of red wine and we had a great time and, you know, made a nuisance of ourselves and all those, you know, it was really, really great lunch. And I was so glad because, you know, I missed him. Um, and then Anita called us like, literally a week later and said, I'm really sorry we can't come to the wedding. Chris had a massive stroke and he's, he, he can't talk, he can't move. Um, and it hasn't got any better, unfortunately. Um you know, I mean, obviously this morning he was on TV, which I didn't watch. Um, you know, my, my wife speaks to them a lot on the phone and, and I, Billy Murray and I call him, but we don't get a lot back, unfortunately. But we know that he's in there and he wants to hear from us. And we, you know, we're both incredibly fond of him. Um, but it's, it's a sensitive, a very sensitive situation. It, it's horrible. And, you know, he was, when I saw him the last time um, before he got ill, you know, he'd started going to the gym. He was in really good shape. He was a healthy guy. Um, but he, he'd also had some difficulties in his life that I think had, you know, maybe contributed to that, which I, I can't talk about. But, um, it, you know, it's not e- always easy. Just because someone's famous, it doesn't mean they're having an easy life always. Yeah. No, it, it, it is really sad. I mean, I, I grew up watching The Bill and I grew up watching uh, watching Burnside on The Bill and he was he was a, a tower of a man. He was a powerful, very, very intimidating character that he played. And it, it, it's horrible to see that happened to somebody that you, you know, you, it, it was always a gag. Whenever I went out for dinner with Billy Murray, um, we would, we would get drunk and we'd prank call Chris Ellison. And whenever I went out for dinner with Chris Ellison, we'd get drunk and we'd prank call Billy Murray. And, and I can't do that anymore. And that's really sad, you know, but I mean, like I said, I never underestimate how lucky I am and I got to do that. And it's great. Um, but it is, it's horrible. It's horrible about Chris. Okay. Um, but on a, on a more positive note, you have a new film coming out. I do. You have a new film coming out. What can you tell us about that? So Renegades um, is, in a way, very similar to We Still Kill the Old Way. Um, it's about a, a group of uh, former Special Forces soldiers who meet up in a, a bar that one of them owns every couple of weeks and talk about 
yeah, like a support group for their PTSD. Um, and they are Ian Ogilvy, Billy Murray, Nick Moran, Paul Barber, and Lee Majors. Yes, the Lee Majors, oh. the full guy. Um, and Lee's daughter, played by Patsy Kenzie, is having some trouble with her local gang. She's a counsellor. And he goes around to warn them off. And they murder him um, and throw his body in a canal. And um, his ex SAS buddies decide to take revenge and take the law into their own hands. And uh, I think the expression is dispense their own brand of justice on the mean streets of London. <laughs> um, and, and that's what they do in, in great fun style. So it's kind of the wild geese meets Harry Brown. Um, that's the best way I can describe it. It's, um, it's by far the best movie I've made. It's the most ambitious. Um, Danny Trejo is their um, sort of uh, informant, if you like, the guy who pulls all the strings and makes things happen for them. Um, and sort of controller. Uh, you know, we have Michael Prey in it. Um, Lewis Mandalore plays the villain, who's a fantastic Australian actor. That's in my, my Big Factory Wedding and also the Debt Collectors movies with Scott Atkins. Um, my, my wife plays the detective who's um, investigating it and who slowly kind of begins to realise actually they're doing the right thing and she should sort of step away a bit. And she's brilliant in it. And it's just every, there's not one weak link in it. You know, you make these movies. And there's always someone that lets it down, but everyone in this is is absolutely firing on all cylinders, and um, I think I think it's gonna be a real crowd pleaser. It's in, you you visibly lit up when you were talking about that, and so you you can see how much passion you've got for this film and how, how much you you yeah. genuinely believe it's it's the best thing you've done because your face just said it all. Because yeah, you're, you're no, not an yeah, actor, yeah. you can't lie about this. You know, it comes no. out. No, 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 exactly. Um, but I think it's also, um, you know, you have to hold your hands up when you make stinker, you know, and I've made enough of them. But this one is really good. You know, if I watched it on telly one night, I'd really fucking enjoy it and go and buy the DVD the next day. So I'm I'm really, really happy with it, and it's great, and it's been a really good um, a good process. Unfortunately, it's not going to come out for a while. It's coming out in America first, I think in June. Um, Savannah releasing it over there, and then it will come out, I guess, towards the end of the year here. But they have a a hold back on the um, on the other territories. So, uh, yeah, but it's you know it is an American facing film, although it's set in London. It's got this real international kind of vibe to it. It's not a you know I don't know how much I can swear on this, but it's not one of those e fucking camp movies. So it's, it's a bit more elevated than that. So um, when it comes when it does come out in the UK, I take it we're going to get home release, and is it going to be streaming as well? I would imagine, mate, it's going to be streaming. I mean, you know, I've I've kind of resigned myself to the fact that this is probably the last one of mine to have a DVD. It's, um, you know, I, I love physical media and I'm a great fan of it, but if the supermarkets don't stock them, no one can buy them. So it's, you know, it's kind of, we always used to say 10 years ago, we say if the distributor would spend money on a TV commercial, it was a proper film. Then it was, if the distributor does a Blu-ray, it's a proper film. Then it was, if the distributor does a, a DVD, it's a proper film. Now it's all streaming. And to be honest with you, the only stuff that comes out on DVD is either the really shit horror stuff that no one wants to buy or the Marvel stuff because people will buy it to give their kids on the school holidays. And <laughs> and I get that. But I, unfortunately, I think DVD is dead. Um, certainly in the UK, I think it's, look, Bond will come out or Spider-Man will come out with their... They fall into that category of what I just said. They keep the kids quiet things. Um, you know, I still buy Blu-rays. I go to HMV. Um, it's fantastic. But even I, as the great advocate of physical media, find myself occasionally slipping into Netflix or Amazon now as much as I, I don't want to. Um, and I guess, you know, look, if you can't buy it physically, you have to watch it digitally, don't you? Well, if it's happening to you, then it really is the beginning of the end, isn't it? It, it is. But if you ever see me with a Kindle, shoot me, because fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> that's the bridge too far or in a tracksuit having an argument in a car park absolutely yes quite with a Range Rover um, or just in a tracksuit I mean that's bad enough well yeah, well, yeah now, now we mentioned the tracksuit I mean you whenever you are pictured you are well you're the picture of sartorial elegance I think is, is the phrase you would use in fact this is the first time I've seen you without a tie Yes. So for yes. anyone watching yep. this on, on YouTube, Jonathan's not actually wearing a tie now, so this is rare. This is extremely rare. Yeah, you should alert the media immediately. We, we um, should. We sh- yeah, we should. Yeah, this is your, your, your whole image has been shot now by not wearing a tie. But you, you've obviously recently published a book. Yeah, it was, it was one of the things that kept me busy in um, lockdown, that and Steven Seagal. Um, I met a publisher and they said to me, um, would you like to write a book about um, how to make indie films? And I said, not really, because, you know, who want my advice? Um, and he said, what would you like to write about? And I said, shirts, suits, watches, all the things I actually like. Um, and they said, really, shirts? I said, yeah, and there's this amazing street in London called German Street that's just, you know, men's shirt shops. And I love it. It's like Mecca for me. Um, and I said, oh, really? I said, yeah, and I get them all involved. They all love to be, you know, 
help and, and sort of open their archives. And it was a lot of fun. I just, I've always, I've always enjoyed wearing um, tailored clothes. I don't know why, you know, there's not one moment to it. I always used to gravitate towards people like Steed in the Avengers and, you know, Roger Moore's James Bond and those, mm. those kind of people. Um, and obviously, you know, I appreciate my style is so anachronistic now, but I, I do enjoy it. And maybe it's because I don't have to wear a suit to work. You know, so I can enjoy it. I don't have to wear a tie. I mean, I'm the only person in my business that wears a suit and tie. I know that, um, and and it's fun, and I I, I do I do like it. And I, I you know I wish we lived in an age where more people did. Um, <laughs> you know, I I, I kind of um, totally advocate the whole Kingsman policy, um, but you know, it is. It's just it's just something that that I enjoy. I suppose it's a quirk, really, or an eccentricity, which is is very strange to me because I expect everyone to be the same, but. They're not, um, but you know, I I enjoy it. My wife appreciates it, so that's that's kind of all I care about. Well, it makes you stand out. It, it's like it's your own brand, isn't it? It's your own brand. Yeah, yeah. I guess it is. I guess it is. I never thought of it that way, but yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> um, you mentioned James Bond, then you mentioned Roger Moore. I know you are a, a huge Roger Moore fan. There's no point in me asking you who is your favourite James Bond or who is the best James Bond because I think we know the answer to that. I would hope we do. Yes. <laughs> I would hope um, we do. Um, but are there any actors that you haven't worked with that you would like to um even ones that you would no longer have the opportunity to yeah absolutely i mean look, timothy dalton is very much on my oh. list um you know and, and and i got really close to getting in a movie a couple of years ago really really close um didn't happen unfortunately but um i met him a couple of years ago and he's he's kind of game so um i love to work with dalton love to work with Piers brosnan um dalton was my kind of second bond you know it was great um brosnan i just think is a terrific actor um I'd love to work with Michael Caine. I think that moment's probably passed. You know, I can't really see him doing much now. Um, my number one is Stallone. Absolutely love to work with Stallone. Um, and and Seagal, you know, is, is totally up there. Um, and uh, John Sim, I think, is a fantastic actor. Love him to death. Um, done a film with his wife. She's a friend of mine. They're, you know, they're both terrific people. Um, yeah, endless, endless people. Um we're, I'm talking at the minute to Michael Jai White. I really want to do a movie with him. We're pretty close to, to getting that done. Um, I think he's he's a terrific talent, really good actor, um, an amazing martial artist, obviously. Um, love to do something with Sharon Stone. Yeah, I think that'd be really, really cool. I love what I love working with older actors. You know, it's, it's the, everyone wants to work with young people, and and you know, it's great. But I've, I I often feel like there's enough people giving opportunities to new talent. But it's really nice to look at the people that have achieved so much and maybe aren't doing as much as they could or should be. And I don't include any of the people I've just mentioned in that. But you know, I it's fair to say. I mean, when when's this going out? Is this going out immediately? No, this this will probably go out um, middle of May, I think. Okay, so the the star of my next movie is Tom Berenger, um, but we haven't announced that yet. But you know that's a real coup for me. That's the first time I've had an actor who's a you know Oscar nominated um, actor in one of my movies, and and it's fantastic. You know that's that's awesome. Um, and and we've also got the baddie is Peter Green um, from Pulp Fiction and The Usual Suspects. So you know it's it's the the list of actors that I'm want to work with is endless, but they're mostly ones that are you know um, people that had an impact on me and and you know. I want to give something special to really. Mm, okay. Um, we, we did mention Bond. We did mention obviously who is the best Bond. We both know that's Roger Moore, but cool. do you have, cause, cause I have, I have a top five Bond movies in no particular order. Do you have something similar yourself? I think it's important. Yeah, we, no, we, we get that out of the way. In no particular order, um, on a Majesty's secret service, a live and let die, a view to a kill for your eyes only and octopusy. No casino Royale in there. No, <clears throat> No. For me, Bond died with Cubby Broccoli. That's that's the truth of it. You know, he he was Bond. His is um, you know the people that are doing it now clearly don't understand it as far as I'm concerned. Um, and, and I really think it's time to knock it on the head. You know, they they they've absolutely driven it into the ground and stripped away everything about it that I used to enjoy and admire. Um, and you know, bloody Gollum, you know, in his too tight suit has just ruined it. Sorry. Um, it's not for me. There's nothing aspirational left in it at all. It's um, it's just a lot of noise and stunts and pretend romance, and I don't see it myself. That's that. That well, you you. That's a very firm opinion on that one. Um, I I personally would have license to kill in a top five. Yeah, no, both both of them are, both of them would be six and seven. I thought Dalton's bonds were both great. The the first one suffered from not having an overly memorable villain. Um, you know, like like a lot of those 80s movies did, um, or are not a strong enough villain, if you like. 
Uh, License Kill's terrific movie. I actually saw it at the cinema a couple of years ago. It's great. And he's magnificent. You know, it, it's frustrating because Dalton was good for another two and Brosnan was good for another two. Yeah. They somehow got the order of it all wrong. And, and, you know, I know that Dalton didn't connect with audiences in that way. But, you know, it took Connery 3 to make it a phenomenon. It took Roger 3 to be completely accepted. You know, it was that although Live and Let Die was a big success, The Man with the Golden Gun wasn't. Um, and, and The Spy Who Loved Me was the one that really kicked it in. Um, I, I think Brosnan got, you know, he, he hit the ground running. I thought Goldeneye was a decent film. Um, I didn't like the second one. I thought the other two were okay. He was always great in there. I thought he was fantastic, Bond. Um, and and I, I think it was mad to get rid of him. Absolutely crazy. I don't think Cubby Broccoli would have done that. Um, and. I just think now is the time to, you know, expand it out into streaming, do these series, you know, the young M or money pennies day off or Blofeld's, you know, maze or whatever it's going to be. Um, and, and just leave it as a movie, you know, look, my kids aren't interested in James Bond. Trust me. They have no one young cares about it at all. Um, so who are you making these films for? Mm. That's, that's what I don't understand because you're, you're not satisfying the nostalgia crowd apart from giving him an old car and you're trying to make it woke and all this kind of stuff, for what? You know, that audience is not interested in this. They've got enough to watch on Netflix. Why keep flogging a dead horse? It's a mystery to me. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's probably purely financial. It's, they, they, they know people are going to watch it. They, they know yeah, it's but, making uh, money. You know, I, I, I love making money, but Darren, how much money do you need? <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, seriously, that's, there's only so much you can give to charity, isn't there? Assuming that's what they're doing with it, yeah, I'm sure they're finding something they they can put it into. Um, is there any type of film that you would like to make that you haven't done yet? Yes, a really successful one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's obviously going to be your next one. I think so. I think so. But um, yeah, it's, it's look, it's nice. Um, no, I, it's it's a challenge. I mean, you know, I look at our slate at the minute of the things we're developing and the things we're close. And, you know, we have a lot of traditional action movies. Um, the next two are very traditional action movies, the Crossfire, um, which will have been in the can probably by the time people hear this, um, is basically Die Hard in a shopping mall on Christmas Eve. Um, the one after that is, um, do you remember a John Wayne movie called Brannigan? Oh, where John Wayne comes to London and he oh, teams up with Richard Asper no. as a cop. Okay, so it's, it's a little bit like that, but it's, it's Michael Jai White um, rather than John Wayne um, kicking ass in, in London. Um, and then, you know, we're developing a proper full-on ninja movie. Um, oh! It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of like, imagine Unforgiven for ninjas. Um, and it's, it's been written by this brilliant writer in America called Chad Law, who I absolutely love working with, um, who's kind of the top guy in this action space. And we both love all those kind of canon movies and all that kind of thing. Mm. And we're trying to make the ninja movie that we'd actually like to have seen in the 80s, you know, like a real proper one. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so that's in development. We've got a shark movie in development. Um, <laughs> but I can I can only do it if it's good. You know, I can't be making a shit shark movie. Um, and uh, you know, no one's ever going to make Jaws. But we've tried to make it. Have you seen that alligator movie called Crawl? I'm aware of it. I've not watched it, but I am aware of it. Okay, so it's it's kind of like that. so it's sort of all in all in a it's, it's you know it's a shark in an enclosed space. Yeah. So it's not just two people on a raft not dipping their hands in the water, which I'm so sick of. Um, or people going down to a cave. So so we're trying to do a you know a thriller with a shark rather than a shark movie, but it is a shark movie. Um, and you know we're going to try and make it as practical effects led as possible. Have you, um, have you got a director yeah. on for that yet? I have, yes, yes. Because obviously, um, we both know Phil Claydon, who I interviewed the other day. He is a huge Jaws fan. He is a he is. huge Jaws fan. Yeah, we, we discussed it. No, no I'm, I'm actually looking at something with him as well. Um, so uh, yes, no, we talked at great length about Jaws three. He and I, <laughs> um, which was we're both fans of. Um, so yes, yes. No, there's, there's loads of stuff. So there's an eclectic slate, but it's all action horror, but preferably action horror. That's mm. that's the stuff. Um, you know, video shop classics, really. And the way I see it is there's sort of 15 years of making these movies, and I want to make as many of them as I can in that time, work with as many great people, and, and make movies that people will really enjoy. And that's, the, you know, that's the one of the rewards of this, is that people, when they're good, people really like them, and it's, it's lovely. Is that your plan for 15 years, and then you're, you're going to retire? Yes. Okay. Um, unless, unless one of them's really successful, in which case it'll be much quicker. <laughs> yeah, it could be in three months. It could be in three it months. Could. 
when when I mentioned that I, because I mentioned to a few people that I was going to be interviewing you on a podcast, and I mentioned I was going to be interviewing Phil, because obviously Phil's the director of Lesbian Vampire Killers, I was immediately inundated with people saying, ooh, I, I'd love to get somebody involved in the film industry. I've got somebody who's who's written songs. I've got somebody who's written a script. What's your take? Because you must get that all the time. You must get people sending you unsolicited scripts, sending you compositions for music they've done. What What's your advice to people like that? Do you respond to that? Do you, do you Does anybody have a chance? It depends what it is. Yeah, absolutely. I read everything. You know, that's that's all you you have to do. That. Oh, you've it's opened yourself up there, Jonathan. You've opened yourself up there. So you read. <laughs> you know, after all these years on social media, I don't think I could be any more open. Um, but all I would say is target the right person. Because the amount of people that send me samples of fucking sitar music or send me one pages that are like, you know, gay Western set on the moon and stuff like this. And it's like, guys, why do you think I'm the person to send it to? Um, and, and you know, I know I know most people just blast it all out to a thousand people. But take the care when you're writing to someone and asking them to read your stuff, take the care to get their name right. And, and have some vague notion that they actually might genuinely be interested in it. You know, there is anyone of the three people that will tune in to hear me talk about this, and that's no disrespect to your podcast. I'm sure it's going to be huge. It's going to be massive, um, you massive. Know, tr- trust me, two of them will think, what that guy needs is a movie about a giant fish that has anxiety. <laughs> you know, and that's what they'll... And it's, you know, that's what people seem to take away. So it's really hard. It's It's, you know... It, it's tough, but that's yeah, that's my advice. And sometimes these these spec emails really can go somewhere, um, you know. And I, you're, you're never too old or too successful or whatever you want to call it to not have an open door to people. Um, I don't read scripts. Um, I always say to people, send me a page, and I'll tell you if I want to read the script or if we've got something too similar or, or whatever it is. Um, and you know, I have people who read read the s- scripts as well that we look at. Um, but, you know, yeah, you have to look at everything that comes in. You have to. And to, to save people contacting you via all different types of media that you, you don't want, is there a preferred method for people to, to get in touch with you? Yeah, just through our website, shogunfilms.com. Shogunfilms.com and send a message through there. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Um, I, we, we should do this more often. We should do this more often. We should. Anytime. I'm, I'm always available. <laughs> And I, the same fee again for the, for the same fee again yeah we, we might even double the fee next time double the fee next time uh but for the tax purposes there was no fee there was no fee um so yeah thank you very much it's been a pleasure and i can't wait to see renegades i'm really excited for that to come out but uh obviously i've got a better chance if i go to america because i'll be able to watch it first exactly exactly thanks buddy see you All soon right. thanks very much <laughs>